I want to ask you to pray with me. Father, we come to your word and we give our heart to it. We pray that you would take the written word by your spirit and plant it deep into our heart that we might do what we just sang. Follow you, obey you, bring honor and glory to you. We pray, Lord, your blessing upon this, our time together in your word, and we ask it in Christ's name, amen. If you would open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. The Bible tells us that each one of us has been given a stewardship over something of infinite worth, something that is invaluable. I'm not referring to your body. Though your body is, the scripture says, fearfully and wonderfully made, and when it is rightly observed and studied, it is a great means to glorify God for his creating wisdom, his ability, nor am I referring to our minds. Again, we have been given by God tremendous ability to think, to reason, to create, and this is part of our being created in the image of God. What I am referring to is your soul. Your soul has been given to you by God, created by God, and is of infinite worth. Your soul is the very essence of who you are. It's your inmost being. The scripture often refers to your spirit or to your soul as the heart of man. All that the soul comprises makes up that part of us which is most uniquely different or distinct from the rest of creation and what really comprises our being made in the image of God. It is the most valuable part of who you are. Your soul has not always existed. It was created by God and given to you and at the time of your birth was joined to your body. But once that soul has been created, then it is immortal. Meaning that that soul, your soul, will never cease to be. Once made, the Lord will sustain it throughout all eternity. This being true, how much time, effort, energy, discipline are you exerting and caring for your most precious possession, your soul. Isn't it amazing how disciplined we can be over other aspects of life? Our bodies, for instance. How meticulous we can be for caring for our bodies. Exercise, what we eat, what we don't eat, what we drink. How disciplined we can be in all the areas of physical fitness. Even our minds. Some some can devote so much time to the study of the arts, history, geography, etc. All of these things being examples of how disciplined we can be to improve both body and mind. And all of this to a certain degree and taken to a certain extent is good. We're told in the scriptures to be good stewards of our bodies, to take care, to discipline our bodies. And Paul even says bodily exercise profits a little bit. There's a little value in it. 
How meticulously do you care for your soul? Are you as careful what you put into your soul as what you put into your body? Do you only want the best to enter in there? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, in verses 24 through 27, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Jesus seems to allude to a fact here that in the coming day of judgment, those that have given no heed for their soul in this life would give everything to make things right. To give everything that they possess and whatever they could gather together from whomever else by whatever means. The piercing question of Jesus here is, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And the answer to that, ultimately, is that there is nothing that you can give. There is nothing that is of such great value that you could exchange to God for the redemption of your soul. So giving serious consideration to the state of your soul this morning, is your soul prospering, soul prosperity, growing, Are you preparing now for an eternity to be spent with God? Or are you losing your own soul? What will it profit a man to gain the whole world? Be as physically fit as you possibly can be. Have the greatest mind and intellect trained by the greatest in minds of our own day and past days. It will profit you nothing in the end. You'll trade everything for it if you could. But you can't. Are you losing your soul through neglect? Through pursuit of worldliness? I would venture to say today, and I think this is true of many, that there are others outside of yourself far more considerate of your own soul than you are far more concerned for your own soul than you are. So I hope this morning that the Lord would awaken us to the care of our soul and that he would point us to the one person and into the one place where all can be made right. And in that day of judgment, we aren't looking for things to make an exchange. The exchange has already been made. Do not lose your soul through neglect. Part of what we're going to look at this morning in Ephesians chapter 3 is evidence of what I've just said. Paul is extremely concerned for the souls of those that comprise the church of Ephesus. Probably far more concerned than some of them are for themselves. 
And even while he would express this concern, Paul knew, we know from other places, that the individual alone is responsible for their own soul. Your mother, your father, your grandparents, your sister, your brother, your aunt, your uncle, whomever, cannot care ultimately for your soul. This is between you and God alone. Are you keeping it? Are you keeping it through worship, prayer, scripture, regular fellowship with the saints of God, or are you losing your own soul through neglect of these same things? The first step to keep your soul is to commend it to Christ by grace through faith. Once your soul is in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, it will never be lost until that point in time You are forever and ever in great peril and in great danger. There is only one place of soul safety, and that is Jesus Christ. There is only one place where you can lay your head down on your pillow every night and sleep in peace to know that Christ is keeping you. My exhortation to you this morning as we look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19 Do not lose your soul through neglect. Do not lose your soul through rejection of Jesus Christ. This is in every way the day of salvation for you. Tomorrow may not come. So with that, if you found your place in Ephesians 3, I want you to read with me. We're going to read down through verse 21, but I only expect to make it through the 19th verse. We'll come back to verses 20 and 21 next week. Interestingly, I always record in my Bible when I preach or teach from a passage. And this is one of the most turned to passages in that regard over the last six years. There are six or seven different dates that I have written here over this paragraph that is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And then just a few weeks ago, we heard Don Curran preach from this text. It seems like when you go to a conference on spiritual growth, this text is going to come up. It should be one that we know well. I would go so far as to say it's one that you should commit to memory. We know that the Word of God hidden in our heart does us much good and there is great profit in it in keeping us from sin and harm. If we have these truths committed to memory and we know not just what Paul wants for Christians, but what the Lord Jesus Christ wants for us, how comforted we would be and how much anxiety it would dispel. So this is a prayer for Christians. That's important. Paul is not here praying for unbelievers. There is a place for that. We need to give ourselves much to evangelism and prayer for those who are unbelievers. But this particular prayer, it's important to note that Paul is praying to the Father on behalf of those whom he has already referred to back in the first chapter as the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul is praying that they would grow, that they would grow in grace and godliness 
grow in their understanding of who Jesus Christ is, grow in their love for Christ and love for one another. So let's read it. Verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, According to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. Amen. The first part of this is where Paul lets us know without any doubt that he is praying to his Father in heaven on behalf of believers. Look at the first few words of verse 14. For this reason. I would take you back to the first verse of chapter 3 where he says the same thing. For this reason. The things that we've looked at the past two weeks really comprise an inspired detour of sorts in the mind of Paul. I think verse 14 is where he wanted to go when he began this verse back in the first of chapter 3. But he got sidetracked just a bit by the grace of God in Christ, the mystery that is now made known. And his thoughts now by the Spirit are all gathered back up and he's ready to commence into this great prayer. For this reason, I think, takes us back to the end of chapter 2 where Paul describes the wisdom of God and having made one man out of two, Jew and Gentile now together in the family of God. And it's this family in verse 14 that Paul reminds us that the Father in heaven is naming. He's naming the whole family. A family unit that's no longer divided, but one. Paul is praying to the Lord based upon the wisdom of God and bringing the Gentiles into salvation by grace through faith. You know, there is a a system of biblical interpretation that maintains a great distinction between Gentile and Jew all throughout the end of the Scriptures, all throughout the end of time. Let me just point out something here. If that's a system we ascribe to, then basically what we are saying is that the crosswork of Jesus Christ that tore down the wall, all of that's going to be pushed to the side. The wall is going to be re-erected and the division between Jew and Gentile is coming into play again after Christ removed it. That seems to me to devalue the work of Jesus Christ. That seems to me to take all of the promises of the Old Testament saying that there is one coming to bring light to the Gentiles and that seems to me to look at these verses by everything that he did on the cross 
by the shedding of his blood, by the rending of his body, by his work, through his ministry on earth, his preaching and his teaching about the coming of the kingdom and all of these things and taking it as though it were only good for a temporary time. And then we'll hit the rewind button and go back and re-erect all of these distinctions between Jew and Gentile. Paul here, I believe, in these verses 14 is, is building off of the great wisdom of God and tearing all of these distinctions down and making for himself one new people. And he is naming them individually, but note that they are still part of one whole family. He says he is bowing his knee to the Father of his Lord Jesus Christ. Bodily posture is often an expression of supreme submission. That's what we find in the Psalms. There are times when the psalmists are are lying prostrate before God in total submission to him. This here is not a forced submission by Paul. It is an, an, is an expression of submission in love. But this is the same bodily posture that Paul would write of in another letter, saying that there will be one point in time that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. That day he's referring to there is indeed a day of forced submission. When all of heaven and earth will bow the knee to Jesus Christ and confess that He is Lord. But here Paul is making known his supreme submission to the will and the wisdom of the Father of His Lord Jesus Christ by bowing His knee and beginning to pray for these believers. John Owen is a name you'll recognize from history one of the greatest of the Puritan writers. He referred to the fact as God making himself known as our Father. He says of this, when we consider the Father's love, this ought to be looked on as the fountain from which all other sweetnesses flow. Why does God lavish so much upon us as his people? Because he is to us a Father. Wednesday evening we talked about different aspects of the fatherhood of God and what we can expect. And we asked and answered the question, what can we as Christians expect from God as our Father? The answer to that, very simply, is we can expect the same things that an earthly child expects from a good earthly father. Our Father in Heaven is going to provide for us. He's going to protect us. He's going to nurture us. He's going to care for us. He's going to call us to Himself. He's going to deal with us gently. He's going to do all of these things for us just like a good earthly father does for his own child. And notice that the Father is naming. The whole family in Heaven and Earth is named. I couldn't help but think of John chapter 10. Or even though it is said there of Christ as the good shepherd calling his sheep out by name, but yet in the larger or overarching scheme, 
Here is the Father giving those names that Christ knew to call out of the world and to himself. And now he is building and he is drawing to himself this one family unit under his fatherhood of which Christ is to be seen as the elder brother, the Savior, the Redeemer. After Paul initially gets the point across that he is praying in submission, not only praying in submission, but in wonder to the mystery and the wisdom of God, he says in verse 16 that he, the Father, would grant you according to the riches of his glory. What Paul is praying here is that God would give the best of all that he has spiritually to believers. Do you believe that he wants to do that? He wants to do that. He will do that. He is doing that. Far too often our conception of God as Father is one of a stern disciplinarian. And he is that when that is called for. But it's helpful, I think, and and this is something that John Owen tries to express, that that's not, if we want to call it, a default setting of God. His default setting is not strong disciplinarian. When necessary, yes, that's one of the ways he deals with us. But if we have to see a primary designation of who God is as Father, it's one of tenderness, it's one of love, it's one of giving, it's one of drawing us in, it's one of providing for us everything that is necessary, helpful, and needful for us. This word grant here, when Paul says, I am praying that he would grant you This is a free giving of his limitless possessions. Not material possessions, but spiritual blessings. That's the way Paul began back in chapter 1, verse 3, when he says that we have already been blessed in the heavenly places in Christ with the richest of the blessings that God could give. Blessings of salvation, redemption, bringing us to faith in Christ. And all of this is given with an overture of love and concern. When the father gives to his child in this way, the child cannot refuse. Think of your own children. Children are won over by a father's attention, by a father's generosity, by a father's love and care. And yes, even by the gifts given to them by their father. Is that not true? Of earthly relationship of child and father, that a child is won over by first the father's attention. You're my child, I love you. And then also his generosity, the things that he would lavish upon them, his love and his care, the sense of security a child feels when his father is present. I've shared this with you before, but I remember as a young child, from time to time, my dad would send me out to the barn to get something he forgot at night. It was dark, and I was a child, and I was scared, and I would run as fast as I could there and as fast as I could back. But how different if he said, let's go to the barn in the dark. 
I had none of those feelings of fear. I had none of those feelings of something is lurking in the corner to get me. Why? Because he was there. And that's the same thing when Paul is saying here, he's reminding us, I'm asking that your Father in heaven would give you these things. He wants to give you these things. He loves you. He cherishes you. He relishes you. There is no need for you to fear when you realize that His presence is this near unto you and He is granting these things to you. If we're ever to know and receive the things that Paul is praying for us here and that he is praying for the Ephesians, it will only be owing to our fathers giving them to us. These are things that we cannot reach out and take for ourselves. We cannot, of our own strength, whether physical or mental or or even spiritual, we cannot go after these things and grab them and bring them to ourselves and keep them by our strength. But these are the things that the Father grants in love. Here, child, take this. Understand this. Know that this is the way that I love you. This is what I want for you. This is what I desire for you. These are the things that I would have you to know and glory in these things. The first thing that Paul prays, I think, is really the point of the entire prayer. I think everything else runs out of this first petition where he says that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. According to Romans chapter 7, and that's the chapter where Paul goes back and forth with saying the things I want to do are not the things that I do, the things that I I say I'm never going to do are the things that I actually go and do. That's relative of the struggle between the flesh and the spirit that is represented in the heart of the Christian. Paul here is praying first and foremost that the Father would grant us what we need the most, and that is strength from above to live the Christian life. Your living the Christian life starts in your heart, starts in your devotion to Christ, and then it goes to your head, what you know, and then it goes to your hands and to your feet and to what you do. If we don't have victory in our heart, in our soul, where this battle between the flesh and spirit rages, and perhaps we should call it a war, that's what the the Scripture calls it, there is a warring that is taking place in the inner part of man, in our soul. This is where we need strength. When we fail, this is where we fail. Though the outward expression may be something we say or do, we lost the battle or perhaps the war earlier in our soul, in our spirit, in our heart, and we gave over. We were defeated. We need strength. And we need it from our Father in heaven. Lesser battles may be fought concerning the body and the mind, 
but the war in the soul is the war that must be won. And I want to I want to make an application of this in two ways. The first is just what I said to the Christian. You have help. You have strength given to you by your Father in heaven to resist temptation. To discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. He is dispensing this strength to you and will continue to dispense this to you according to the riches of His glory. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for it and pray for it often. That doesn't mean that we should cry out to the Lord and ask for more strength because we feel keenly our weakness in this area. This is something the Lord wants to give you. He wants to help you in this war. In fact, He is the only one who can. And He'll use His Word, read and studied. He'll use the people of God. He'll use every means of grace available to impart this strength to you as a believer. But I want to step aside from this just for a moment and talk to those who have yet to put faith in Christ. And I'm referring here to this battle that rages in your soul even today. And perhaps you sometimes keenly sense this battle, and we call that sensing of it conviction. Where there is conviction for sin for a time. And you feel as though you're just going to boil over if something doesn't happen. If this sense of conviction does not subside. I want to read you something that that I read a few nights ago in reading through the Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you've read that. Probably most of you have. John Bunyan's greatest work. The second most published book of all time other than the Scriptures. If you've not read Pilgrim's Progress, get a copy, read it. If you want the modernized English version, if the old English causes you to trip and stumble, get a modernized English version and read it to the profit of your own soul. You remember in that story, Bunyan talks about a man named Christian. So as you read it, just name yourself Christian and read it, and what you're going to read is your life. That's part of the captivating nature of this book. It's not inspired of the Spirit, but it is wonderfully written by a man who knew the Scriptures like few, of, like few do or did. You'll remember, if you've read the book or if you haven't, there is a point in time where Christian begins to keenly feel the weight of the burden on his back. And he's told to flee from the wrath to come. And a man comes and meets him. The man's name is Evangelist. And he tells him, he points him to the gate. He says, go this way. Make your way to this gate. It's narrow. Stay on this path. It will lead you there. And he, on his way there, you remember, he falls into this slew of despond. Do you remember that in the book? This miry place where he and one of the travelers that for a time I believe his name was Pliable. Maybe I got that wrong, but 
he had struck you out with him, and they fall into this sinkhole, as it were, and they're struggling for life, they're struggling through the difficulty of life. And this is the way John Bunyan depicts this place called the slough of despond or despair. Christian asks a question of the one that finally reaches down and pulls him out. Of the one who came along to help him get out of the mess that he was in. He asks him, sir, why is not this piece of land mended so that poor travelers like myself might go on their way with more security? In other words, why isn't the way easier? Why do we have to go through this place? And the one helping him said to me, This is such a place that cannot be mended. It is the place where the scum and filth that attends conviction for sin continually runs. And therefore... It is called the place of despond. For as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition, there arises in his soul many fears and doubts and discouraging apprehensions, which all of them together come to this place and settle, and that is the reason for the badness of this ground. That was Bunyan's way of depicting what we all experience from time to time as conviction. It feels like you are in a miry clay that you just cannot get out of, and you can't. Even Christian in the story had to have someone come and grab him by the arm and pull him out. So my encouragement to those of you, if ever you fall under this type of conviction and you feel like you are just so involved and engrossed in this feeling or sense that you can't get out of. This waging of the war for your soul is so great that you just don't know what to do. There is only one thing that I could direct you to do, and that is to turn your eyes to Jesus Christ. Plead with Him by faith to come alongside of you and help you to bring you out of this place and to set your feet upon the rock which is Himself. This is where we need strength. And this is why Paul says he is praying first and foremost that the Father of his Lord Jesus Christ would grant according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through the Spirit in the inner man. Some of you know this. Sometimes it is almost or even altogether overwhelming to live in this place of conviction. You begin to distance yourself from that which brings on the conviction. If it's reading the Scripture, then you don't read the Scripture. If it's being amongst the people of God, then you don't any longer go amongst the people of God. If it's doing this or doing that, then you choose to not do this or that. And you try to remove that conviction. But let me tell you, it is one of the greatest mercies of God that you will ever know that He brings this conviction to you again after it has once subsided. When you find yourself in this place of despair and you just white-knuckle your way through it because you know from past experience that it's going to fade and it's going to go away, just get me to that point in place in time where it fades and goes away and everything will be okay. One of the greatest mercies of God is that He brings you back to that place again. 
And he doesn't leave you unto yourself. So if you've been under the conviction of the Spirit of God before, but not presently, the most wise thing you could do is to pray for its return. And then pray exactly what Paul does here, that he would give you strength in the inner man, in your soul. And the only way that strength comes is through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where Paul moves next. He says in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Remember, he's praying for Christians. Christ has already indwelt their heart. The Spirit has already been given. But how many of us know through reading the Scripture and then real life experience that there are times when it seems like Christ has, is rooted in my heart and He is controlling my every thought and action and deed and desire, but yet there are other times where it seems like He has been uprooted by my sin. He has been uprooted by my thoughts and actions. That doesn't mean I've lost my salvation. It doesn't mean that I have lost my conversion or that I have become unregenerate again. It just means that I've fallen into some pattern of sin and I need the Lord Jesus Christ again and afresh and anew to come and to sink roots down into the depth of my heart so that I will sense again that He is there. And that he is my Lord and Savior. Notice that's what he says. He uses two images here. One from agriculture, the other from architecture. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted. That's the agricultural metaphor. Go out to one of these pine trees out here that's about 50 or 60 feet tall. Grab a hold of it and try to pull it up by the roots. Will you be successful? No. This is the type of rooting that Paul has in mind. And notice that it happens through faith. It happens through faith initially, and it happens through faith progressively from that point on. Initially, when Christ comes to dwell in your heart through faith, you're like a pine sapling that's just been planted, rooted, yes, but still somewhat weak and vulnerable. But over time, as you are strengthened in your inner man by the Spirit of God given to you by your merciful and good Father, over time you grow in this process of being sanctified to a one day Lord willing. You are mature in the faith and you're just like one of these trees. Roots are so deep that there is nothing in this world that can uproot you. But the second image he paints here for us is not only that Christ would be rooted, but that he would be in our hearts grounded. In other words, a good foundation upon which a real life can be built. One of the greatest lies of the devil given to people, young people and old people alike, is that you can found or ground a good life in this world outside of Jesus Christ. Any life 
no matter how well-grounded it seems, is built upon the sinking sand of the world if it's not built on Christ. As we sing often at home to conclude our Bible study, much to summer's delight, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. Are you wise or are you foolish? Notice that both of these come through faith. That's the vehicle that the Father in heaven uses to give these things to you. It's faith. This is what Paul would have for you. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ would have for you. Would you do a real inventory of your own heart and life? Is Christ rooted and grounded in love? Is your heart rooted and grounded in love to Christ? Is He dwelling there? The word dwell here means to, make, to take a permanent residence. And then flowing out from that, being rooted and grounded in love. Notice what he says in verse 18. This is the prayer for comprehension. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, length, depth, and height. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The word comprehend here means to seize are to overtake. And notice what Paul is praying. That you would be able to comprehend the four-dimensional love of Christ. Interesting, isn't it? He gives four dimensions to the love of Jesus Christ. And then he says it passes knowledge. When we want to see something in high definition, we want to see it in 3D like it is in real life. All three dimensions, right? Notice that Paul speaks of the width, the length, the depth, and the height of the love of Jesus Christ. Ian Hamilton says this, referring to these four dimensions. He says, the love of Christ is broad enough to embrace the world. It is long enough to last for eternity. It is high enough to lift us up to heaven, and it is deep enough to reach the most degraded of sinners. This is the love that Paul in the Spirit of God wants us to know, to comprehend, to be able to fathom and to understand just how great the love of Jesus Christ is. And notice, we can't skip over this. He says that you would comprehend it with all the saints. All the saints are to comprehend this. They're to comprehend it together. And I think the connotation is here that all the saints are necessary for one individual believer to know the four-dimensional love of Jesus Christ. You have to have someone loving you in Christ's name and then you have to love someone else in Christ's name for these dimensions to be made known. 
fully. I think Paul is painting again here a great picture of the church of Jesus Christ and the necessity of it for us as Christians. I read something this week and I thought long and hard on it. And I want to share it with you and I pray that you will take it home with you and think long and hard on it as well. There are basically two ways, and I'm saying basically because I understand there are dozens or hundreds of ways that we might apply what I'm about to say, but there are basically two ways that people think of the church of Jesus Christ, the way Christian people think of the church of Jesus Christ. Some think of it as a water hole where you come and you drink, you're satisfied, you're replenished, you're nourished, and then you go out and live your week, and throughout the week, what you received with the saints of God on Sunday is deplenished, depleted, and you come back that next Lord's Day, and you fill your tank again, and then you go out, and you live in the world, and all throughout the week, it's depleted again, and that cycle plays out over and over. And I'm not going to deny there's some truth in that. We do come as the saints of God together to be encouraged, to be built up, to be strengthened, to have our lives replenished in a sense. But if that's the only way that you think of the church, where you come to church to get and not give, then what's going to happen over time is that the water may begin to taste a little bit different. It may not taste the same. It may even get to be a point where it's bitter. And what do you do? You look for a new water hole where the water tastes like it did before. Because over time, what happens? The people around that water hole get to know you and you get to know them. They have problems. You have problems. They share their heart with you. You share their, your, their heart with you. You share your heart with them. You get to know one another. And sometimes all of that knowledge begins to, in our minds, taint the water just a bit. And we no longer leave feeling refreshed. We leave with a, a sense of heaviness. Let me give you a better understanding. I think a more biblical understanding of what the church is and what I think Paul is getting across here by saying, through or with, along with all the saints, you might be able to comprehend this four-dimensional love of Jesus Christ. You think of the church not just as some place to go to get what you need, but you think of it as a place to go to get what you need and to give to someone else what they need. That's the problem with my thinking too often, and maybe if you're honest with yours is that church is a place where I get what I need. And as long as I get what I need at said church, it's my church. When my felt needs are no longer met, it's no longer my church, I'll go find one that meets my needs. 
What about your brother and sister that is starving for what you can give them? For what you can pour into their lives? To how you can love them? Perhaps you are the one to make known to them the depth of the love of Christ. That you will give yourself over and over and over and over again to them. Or perhaps you are the one that can help them to understand the height of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you are the one that maybe knows just a little bit more and you're able to, in love, come alongside them and bring them along. Perhaps you're the one that can help them to understand the width of the love of Jesus Christ or the height or the depth or the length, how long He will go in loving when we begin to see the church not as just a water hole for my individual use and to see it as a family where I go and pour myself into one another and then we all benefit from it, then I think we're getting a little closer to the picture painted for us, not just by Paul here, but the entirety of the New Testament of what the church of Jesus Christ is. This is what we need. This is what we should desire. That we would, along with all the saints, would be able to comprehend the love of Jesus Christ which passes knowledge. You know, it's true that every believer has a gifting. I believe that. I believe if if you are brought to faith in Jesus Christ, that the Spirit of God will indwell you and enable you to do something for His glory that once you were previously not able to do. Some way to serve. Maybe it's through teaching, maybe it's through some other way, but you have something given to you by the Spirit. Let me add to that, that gifting is never given to you for your soul or individual use. If the Spirit of God has given you a gift, it is to be used in the family of God to bring Jesus Christ glory. And if that's not the way that we're using our giftings, then we are squandering them. And we are not furthering the saints in knowing the width, length, and depth, and height of the love of Christ. You probably have someone in mind that has helped you. I have people in my mind that have helped me to know just how far they will go in loving me. How far they will go in helping me to understand something that I just can't understand. You need these people. I need these people. These people are called the saints, the church. And together, we are given the ability to comprehend the love of Christ. To love the unlovable. Isn't that what Christ did for you? Can you love the unlovable? Christ in you, you can. You must. And I say you must... Because if you don't, what will happen, you will withdraw from the church of Jesus Christ. Because everybody there has an issue. 
I've got issues. Everyone there has something. And if we come only for what we can get and not give, then really we are short-circuiting this prayer of Paul that with all the saints that we would begin to know something more of this four-dimensional love of Jesus Christ. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a thought. Especially when we take it in the context in which it's found. Not too long ago we were studying and reading about those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. Who were walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, conducting themselves in the lusts of their flesh, the desires of their flesh being fulfilled, and of the mind, and by nature children of wrath. That same group of people, out of that same number of people, the grace of God has come and intervened, and now these are the very ones that Paul is saying, you can be filled with all the fullness of God. There is not a greater transformation known in nature. There is not a greater transformation known anywhere but this, that God, through Christ, takes one dead in sin, regenerates him, makes him, makes him a new creature, and then pours into him the very fullness of himself. This is what your Father in heaven wants to give you. He'll grant it to you. But I'll remind you, right in the middle of this paragraph, which, talk, which talks about all of these great things that our Father in heaven will give, Paul tells us they come through faith. They come through faith. So I'll conclude where I began. The greatest way that you can care for your soul is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The longer you refuse to do that, you're neglecting the care of your soul. And you may very well be awakened one day in the presence of a holy God and of Christ Jesus who now stands over you as a judge being asked the question, what will you give in exchange for your soul? And according to the scriptures, Romans chapter 3, your mouth will be silent, you'll have nothing to say, and you'll be ushered into eternal punishment. What a fearful prospect and one totally unnecessary when today you could be in Christ by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.
for your word and this prayer. Lord, we desire these things. We want to know these things more and more. We want to know more the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us as a church, as a group of people, come together, all of us having been redeemed out of sin, to be further and further sanctified together, to love one another high and deep and wide and long so that we will comprehend the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would give faith to those who lack it. And for those who have it in their possession already, Lord, we pray that you would increase it unto your glory. We ask it all in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.